Take your Bibles. Turn with me to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, where we left off the last time. And we read through to uh, verse 8. That's where we ended. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, Paul addresses one of the major problems in the church at Corinth, and that was the problem of an individual who had been involved sexually with his father's wife, and the church was allowing that, apparently, and apparently many of them were thinking nothing of it. Now, you have to remember the conditions of the Roman world and the Greek culture at that time. Uh, They didn't really think anything of uh, extramarital issues the way we might think today. And so there are very, very few uh, in the Greek culture who thought negatively toward this individual, even though uh, it was certainly not something that the Jewish people would be approving of the Gentiles really didn't have much of a problem with it. But unfortunately, they brought that mentality into the church. And so Paul had to address that because it really was not something that could be allowed in the church because we are to be exemplary in every way as we are living our lives for the Lord and we're to be aware of the commandments of the Lord, even though we're not under the law. God did speak on these things of homosexuality, adultery, fornication, all of those sexual sins that were so prevalent in the world then, and by the way, are just as bad, I think, today as they were then. Uh, Perhaps not as highly um, acknowledged as being a freedom that people have uh, yet, but it's approaching that kind of mentality that existed in the first century. Paul is saying that as far as the church is concerned, there is no room for such things. And so he reprimanded them for, first of all, allowing this man to continue in the church. And he talked about purging out the leaven. And the leaven is the sin that was resulting from this man's relationship with his father's wife. And they were glorying in this, how they were so free to forgive and free to allow uh, all of those things because of the grace of God. They figured apparently that uh, with God's grace, there's no reason for concern. But that's not at all what grace is supposed to be uh, in the church. Grace doesn't allow us to do anything uh, that is sinful. And Paul is going to continue to address that very thought as we move forward in the study tonight and uh, later uh, throughout this book. So here in chapter 5, where we left off again, he's telling them that they need to take care of this issue quickly. And he's going to continue talking about that with regard to this individual and give this final statement uh, about the condition of this individual and what they need to do uh, in verse 13 when we get to that. But in verse 9, he tells the Corinthian church that he had written them a letter previous apparently to this letter that he's writing here. It's not a letter that we have. 
Uh, it's not at all uh, been available as a manuscript um, and it's never been included into the Word of God. But it was written by Paul to the Corinthian church and apparently he had addressed uh, an issue with regard to um, keeping company with sexually immoral people. And that's what he says in verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean that the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul is saying kind of tongue-in-cheek that there is so much of that in the world if you were to try to avoid associating with people outside the church because of their sexual immorality, you wouldn't be having any outside contacts at all. That's his point that he's making here. He wasn't instructing the Corinthian church to avoid people in the world who were participating in those things. You still need to come alongside them. You still need to represent Christ. You still need to shine the light. But uh, he was not telling them to not keep company with them so much as it was with regard to those who were in the church who named the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior. So that's what he's addressing here. I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. But, he says in verse 11, Now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Pay attention to what Paul is saying. In the church, if there are those who name the name of Christ, who are participating in such activity, we, as a body of believers, are to not associate with that individual. Now that requires a degree of discernment, and if it is discerned, if it is examined among the brethren that any individual is participating in such things, then it is necessary for the church to take disciplinary action. And that's a very, very difficult thing and uncomfortable thing to do. I've been fortunate to not have to deal with very many such cases, but I have had to deal with some. Uh, we've had to deal with certain individuals who were in a homosexual lifestyle, certain individuals who were living in a uh, an out-of-wedlock situation. They were fornicators, and that was part of the problem that needed to be addressed in the church. From time to time, we have had to deal with that. I want to take the time at this juncture to go back to what Jesus has to say with regard to church discipline. Even though the church wasn't in existence when Jesus was ministering to his disciples, he talked about the fact that he was going to establish his church. He talked about the, the fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The church hadn't yet been born. It won't be until after his resurrection and on the day of Pentecost, 50 days later. But Jesus gives instructions to his disciples and to us with regard to how to deal with such individuals within the body of Christ. And so in Matthew chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me, let's read together, beginning with verse 15, on Jesus' own instructions with regard to disciplining uh, those who are in the church who have failed to understand 
the need for honest, humble, sinless living as members of the body of Christ. He says in verse 15 of chapter 18, Matthew's Gospel, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So here Jesus is saying simply, you've got a situation where your brother has wronged you. Your brother has done something against you. You as an individual within the church are responsible to go to that person and deal with it directly between you and that individual. That's the starting point. That's where it needs to begin. Whenever anybody has done you any kind of harm, any fault that you have been hurt by that individual, you need to take it upon yourself to confront that individual. Now, that's hard for many of us, most of us perhaps, to do. We don't like confrontation. We don't like to have to deal with issues that are uncomfortable. But in the church, it's absolutely required, it's necessary that things like this be taken care of. Because if they're not taken care of, they quickly become out-of-control situations that are causing more problems than any one of us should ever want to have to deal with. But it must begin with the individuals who are involved. One who is wronged, one who has done the wrong, that individual needs to be confronted by the individual who has been wronged. You have gained your brother if you do that, and he hears you and repents and says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Let's make this better for the both of us. And that's where it starts. Forgiveness is absolutely a necessary part of who we are in Christ as we minister to one another, as we relate with one another. And in verse 16, Jesus continues to say, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two others, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So what Jesus is saying here is that first step wasn't successful. Now you go to a couple of other individuals, preferably an elder or a deacon in the church, and you bring them with you and again confront the individual with this particular issue. And you have to have a conversation with that individual in the hearing of those two or three witnesses and so that they can know the fact that it's not just a one-sided issue. Now you've got what's happened as far as the individual who has been wronged and what's happened according to the individual who did the wrong. Now you've got a few individuals who are involved in this conflict that are outsiders, but they're never going to want to make a decision based on one person's uh, information. It needs to be both sides of the issue that are well spoken of uh, and laid out so that those individuals who hear that can make a better judgment. Now, it may be that the individual who is making the accusation isn't really seeing it clearly. And that's why the other person refused to hear. He doesn't need to repent or she doesn't need to repent if she did nothing wrong or he did nothing wrong. It's because the first person didn't understand what was said or done. That's where the other witnesses will come into place so that they can make a determination as to what is right and what is wrong in this situation? Who was hurt 
who was the one who was the offender. And it's much better when those individuals are part of the church leadership. But in verse 17, Jesus then takes it one step further. He says, and if he refuses to hear them, he's still found to be guilty of a, a terrible thing that he has done, uh, then tell it to the church. Now, this is probably to the people who are in charge of the church ministry, the pastor and the leadership primarily. Um, it's not like you've got to go to the whole church in the middle of a church uh, service and say, such and such did this, or so and so did this. That's not what is meant by Jesus here. You take it to the leadership of the church, and if he refuses even to hear the church, then let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Excommunication. That's what has to be done. If he hasn't changed, if he's not willing to return uh, the favor that's being offered to him for forgiveness, if he is to repent from that, he can be brought back into the fellowship immediately. But if he will not repent, then he is excommunicated. And again, as I said last week, that kind of excommunication is for the purpose of restoring that one. Forcing him out of the fellowship should result in his or her's desire to come back and repent is the only way that that will be of available. If it is without repentance, then he is not to come back into the fellowship. So that's what Jesus was talking about, and it's really in line with what Paul has been saying here in 1 Corinthians with regard to dealing with an individual who has sinned. Now, in Jesus' discussion, it was talking about a fault that is between one individual and another. And Paul also was going to be talking specifically to that particular issue as well in the remainder of chapter uh, 6. But before we get that far, going back to verse 11 of chapter 5, I want to repeat to you what it is that Paul is very concerned about with regard to sins in the church. Read it with me again. Verse 11. Now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, so it's a Christian who is in the church, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Now remember, we talked a little bit about judging one another, and uh, the words that Paul is using for judging uh, is uh, a combination of a couple of different words. In the Greek language, there were several words for judging. And the words that are being used by Paul, for the most part, in these passages that we're looking at, are words that imply examining or discerning somebody's actions or words. It's not that we are to be the final judge. That is God's responsibility. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. What have I to do with judging those who are outside? Paul says, look, they're going to be fornicating. They're going to be committing adultery. They're idolaters. I'm not judging them for that. That's up to the Lord. He will judge them. But you and I in the church 
should examine those who are on the inside. And that's what Paul is saying here. We should be food examiners. We should be able and willing to take a look at what's being done by members of the body of Christ. And if they are in sin, if they are doing things that are hurting others or hurting themselves with regard to their spiritual walk, then it needs to be brought to their attention and it needs to be addressed. That's what Paul is saying. And in verse 13, finally he says, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, you put away from yourselves this evil person. Going back to what he was discussing in verses 1 through 8, now he finalizes, as a result of what he has said, verses 9 through 12, put away that one because he will not repent. He's not willing to repent, so he needs to be excommunicated from the body of believers. Now Paul, again, will continue in chapter 6 to talk about some of the things that actually Jesus had addressed in Matthew 18. It has to do with the faults that we have with our relationships one with another. Not criminal situation, but civil issues. The Corinthians were apt to use the, the law for almost every argument. They loved to take people to court. And the court in that day was kind of a, a really strange affair. Uh, there were several kinds of courts, but the most common one was the civil court. And in the civil court, they had as many as a hundred or more jurors who would ultimately hear the case and pass their decision to the judge, and the judge would make the final decision on whatever the issue might be. It could be just a simple matter of somebody saying something against a brother or a sister. And that brother or a sister says, I'm suing you. And they take that individual to the Gentile court outside the church. And what a terrible name that was making of the church. You know, they were representing Christ, or they should have been. But in doing what the Gentiles did outside the church, they were really showing themselves to be no different than those who were unsaved. And that's what Paul is now addressing in chapter 6. He says in verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will examine or judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Again, Paul is using words that are different in the Greek, but always seem to be translated judged in the English translations of our day. But again, he is using these terms. Uh, most of the time, they imply the idea of examining or discerning a fault. But in this case, he also says, do you know that the saints will judge the world? That is a different kind of judgment. And what's he talking about? Well, it's not talking about something that we do now, but he says will judge. It's a future judgment. We are apparently going to be involved somehow in judging the world during the millennial reign of Christ. And Jesus alludes to that fact when he talks in the parables about the giving of uh, responsibilities to the saints who have done well. To some, they will rule over 
ten cities. To some, they will rule over five cities. To some, they will rule over one city. A different degree of responsibility, but they all will be ruling over or judging those people during the millennial reign of Christ who are still in their mortal bodies, while we who are believers will be in our glorified bodies during that time. That's what Paul is alluding to in that statement in chapter 6, verse 2. The saints will judge the world. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Now I have to stop and wonder, what is that all about? And the only thing I can think might be a possible, and this is, again, where I must admit it's opinion, I'm speculating on this issue, that we may be involved in judging the angels that fell at the great white throne judgment. That's one possibility. But it's also clear in the scriptures, Psalm 8, for instance, tells us that we have been made a little lower than the angels. In our present state, that is so. But in Psalm 149, it seems to imply that we will be above the angels. And another psalm tells us that the angels in heaven during eternal uh, time with the Lord that we will be experiencing in our glorified bodies, the angels will be ministering spirits. So it may very well be that there is some kind of judgment that will be going on with regard to the angelic hosts in eternity. But again, we can't tell for sure what it is that Paul is saying specifically here, but it sounds as though we will have some great degree of authority that we do not have now in the days of our glorification. Well, verse 4 continues and says, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? In other words, are you really wanting to appoint outsiders to make those judgments that really should be involving just the people in the church? He says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Unheard of. Paul is very offended by this, and I think so should we, if we were to experience that kind of situation in our church body where we would want to take somebody to court from the church, a brother or sister in the Lord, outside of the church to be judged by an unbeliever, that really seems to me to be a case of unforgiveness, an unwillingness to try to work it out. And when Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, the one where he said, I'll teach you to pray. This is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. He gave that prayer as an example. And he said in that prayer that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. And he goes on after having given that prayer to explain that if we are not willing to forgive, then how can we expect the Lord to forgive us? So forgiveness is such a very important aspect of who we are in Christ. And if we aren't willing to come together with a brother who has offended us and seek agreement with that individual and find a way to receive forgiveness and to give forgiveness, then we're missing the mark as far as God is concerned. We're not working together 
as brothers and sisters in the Lord in a way that pleases God. And Paul is telling that to the Corinthian church. It's also important for us to take note of what he's saying here. We should never, ever, ever allow ourselves to come to that place where bitterness sets in between our brothers and our sisters in the body of Christ. And that's what unforgiveness will do. It harbors bitterness. And that is something that we need to avoid if we are to be used by the Lord, if we are to see revival in the church. There is no room for such things. It needs to be cut out. That's why Paul said again in verse 6 of chapter 5 that we need to make sure we cut out the leaven because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 7 says, Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. If you've already done this, if you've taken this dispute outside the church, it's an utter failure. It's disgraceful, Paul is saying. He uses very strong language. Again, in verse 1, he says, Dare any of you do this? This is absolutely wrong. Absolutely without excuse. No good servant of God should allow such things within the body of Christ. So he says again in verse 7, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? God will take care of that problem. Just accept it. Remember, it's similar to what Jesus said. If somebody hits you in the cheek, turn your cheek and let him hit you in the other cheek. That's the way it should be. Don't do the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, vengeance, because vengeance is the Lord's. Let him take care of the situation. He's capable of doing that. Verse 8 says, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. They're all without excuse, he says to the Corinthian church. Even if not all of them were doing it, if they were observing it being done and not doing anything about it, it's just as if they were doing it themselves. Paul tells us something very similar to that in the book of Romans. He talks about various things that are allowed uh, and observed, and people who do them are without excuse. But he goes on to say, and you who observe those and are willing to allow that to continue, you who watch those things taking place and participate through your observation of them, you're just as bad as they are. That's what Paul is saying here, too. You yourselves do wrong and cheat. You do these things to your brethren. It ought not to be so. Continuing on in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And deception is very, very easily accomplished among the brethren. Deception is something I find to be easier done if it's ourselves who are being deceived. Be careful. But don't deceive others either. Be not deceived. He goes on to say, another list, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, or effeminate, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. Nobody 
who participates in such things and chooses to do that even though he or she knows what the Word of God says, even though he or she has been warned against them, if that individual is a believer in Jesus Christ, he must not, she must not participate in those things. And what Paul is saying here is that uh, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it depends on what side of the issue of eternal security you stand uh, as to how you will treat these verses. But regardless of how you treat them, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Sin is sin, and it must not be allowed in the church. It must be dealt with. And he gives this list, and Paul elsewhere gives other lists that include most of these things and other things besides. These aren't completely uh, a total list of wrongdoings. Uh, there are other lists, as I said, that include other things. But look at this list again. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Most of those, even the idolaters, are sexually motivated sins. The idolatry of that day involved all kinds of fornication, all kinds of homosexual activity. And Paul is addressing that as a sexually uh, challenging issue. Unrighteousness in sexual sin. It's prevalent. It should not be in the church. It's very prevalent in the world today. It was far more prevalent, I believe, in that day. They had temples where there were hundreds of prostitutes, both male and female, and the whims of those who participated in those idolatrous acts had to do with all of these sexual impurities that are described here. But he also goes again on verse 10 to talk about other kinds of activities that are not sexual. Thieves, covetousness, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, none of them will, be, will inherit the kingdom. Now all of us are probably thinking, I've never done any of those, and I hope that that's the case. Now perhaps some have, but for the most part, most of us have probably not engaged in such things. But keep in mind what Jesus said about the thoughts of our mind and our hearts that are deceitfully wicked, and those thoughts of the heart that come out of the mouth, through the tongue, Jesus condemned them. Jesus had said on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, made it very clear that if you think of these things in your heart, it's just as bad as if you have done them. So none of us are without excuse we can all of us find at least one of these in which we might have at least thought about if not having performed them explicitly. But that doesn't exclude us because we've been forgiven. We've come to Christ. We've asked for Christ's forgiveness. And he is able and willing and did forgive when we asked for that forgiveness. Don't be doing any of it now. But if you do fall short in any of these things, 
you can still go to your Heavenly Father and confess your sins to Him. And as a believer, once you do that and repent of that, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because that is how our God operates. He never holds your sins against you. Past, present, or future sins. Let us never forget that. And that's why Paul adds, after having given us this list in verse 10, this wonderful statement in verses 11 and following. He says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is telling us, we have forgiveness. We have been washed, cleansed by the renewing of our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, cleansed because of His loving kindness and His forgiveness and His mercy and His grace toward us. You have been sanctified. Remember, I mentioned the Lord's Prayer, which is what we refer to when we think of the prayer that we pray so often, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We call that the Lord's Prayer, but really the Lord's Prayer specifically was the prayer that the Lord did pray Himself to His Father in John chapter 17. That is really what I like to recall and call rather the Lord's Prayer. It is His prayer to His Heavenly Father and He prays on our behalf, on the people that will come to Him. He wants us to be one as He and His Father are one. He wants us to have that connection with God that He Himself had. And He says in that Lord's Prayer that His Word is truth. The Word of God is truth. And that Word of God, which is truth, sanctifies the believer. We are sanctified by His Word. And that's what Paul is saying here. You were sanctified. You believed His Word to be so. You believed His Word to be the very Word of God. And it is. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut asunder to the very bone and marrow. And it is for the purpose of dealing with the issue of sin in our lives. The Word of God is Jesus Christ Himself, the living Word. John tells us in John chapter 1, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And it is the Word of God that came and dwelt among us. He is the Word of God. And of course, we have the written Word of God. Thy Word, David said, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet, David said. Thy Word, O Lord, is precious. It is precious to me, and I pray that it is so to you. His Word is so important to us. It is what sanctifies you and me. And that sanctification is a past tense occurrence here. According to Paul, you were sanctified, and that is very true. But it is also true that we are being sanctified. It is a process through which we, living day by day, in that continual sanctification by the Spirit of God, 
who is transforming us into the very image of Christ through that sanctification process until the day when we will stand before him. And when we do stand before him, we will be in glorified bodies like unto his glorified body. And we will know as we have been known, we will see him face to face, not as in a mirror darkly, but then clearly. And we will be able to realize that we have not only been fully sanctified, but we will have been glorified fully redeemed. The process will come to an end in that day. Until then, it is still a process. And again, finally, in those three things that he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. That again, justification comes as a once-in-a-lifetime experience at the point of confession of your need for the Savior. When you confess your sin to God, when you ask for the salvation that He alone can give, you received the Holy Spirit, you were born again, you were regenerated by the Spirit to live for Christ, and you were justified just as if you had never sinned. Those are the truths that Paul has conveyed to us in this chapter. He continues on in verse 12 and talks about the fact that we have a responsibility knowing these things about what God has done for us. He says in verse 12, All things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable, expedient, helpful. In other words, because of what Christ has done for me, there is nothing that I cannot do that would not be forgiven by God if I repent of those things. But I don't want to do those things. All things are certainly lawful because the law doesn't hold me captive anymore. I'm a free man, saved by grace, free in the grace to do whatever I choose. But what I choose is to do His will, not mine. And that's what Paul is saying here. All things are lawful for me, but all things aren't useful, helpful, profitable, expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So listen, if there is anything that we have habitually been involved with, we don't have to be. We can go to the Lord and take the stand that Paul is here staying, taking, knowing that it is lawful, it's not going to condemn me to hell because of that sin. But if I continue in that sin, even though I repent of it and go back to it, over and over again. As long as I confess that sin, as long as I feel that the, the need for repentance is there, and I realize that God is willing to forgive me, not seven times, not seven times seventy, but every time. That's important for us all to understand. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. We have control over whether or not we will be under that power of sin. God has technically delivered us from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and eventually from the presence of sin. But as the present day is concerned, in our present day lives, that power of sin is still strong in our flesh because we still are dealing with the flesh. That's why Paul says over and over the commands that we need to take into consideration with regard to the flesh. 
Consider your flesh to be dead to sin, alive in Christ. Mortify, therefore, the deeds of your flesh so that you can live a holy, blameless, spotless life. You have a responsibility to do those things. And when you fail, you can go to the Father and receive that forgiveness. He wipes the slate clean. He casts out your sin as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the depths of the sea. Though your sins be as scarlet, he has made them as white as snow. These are the truths of God's word that we need to continue to observe and rely on daily. Because just like Paul in Romans 7, we all of us have to deal with the flesh on, again, a daily basis. And Paul said, I do the things that I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I should do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then he gives the answer in chapter 8, verse 1. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Keep that in mind. I will not be brought by any of these things under their power. Verse 13 says, Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise up by his power. That's the truth also that Paul wants to convey here, and he does it so beautifully and kindly. Look, we're living in this fleshly body, but there's coming a day when we will no longer be in these bodies of vileness, but we will be raised in glory and in power by God who has raised up the Lord. And because he raised up the Lord, the promise that he will raise up also is so very certain. Paul wanted to assure us all of that. He goes on in verse 14, 15 rather, to say, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. I was going to go on later on to talk about us specifically as members of the body of Christ. So I'm not going to give any detail about that here. But keep in mind that Paul is giving us a metaphorical picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're part of his body. He is the head, and we are members of his body. And he, because of that, wants us to be perfect, wants us to be blameless, wants us to be spotless. Don't allow your members of your body to have any interaction with the things of the world. And he uses harlotry here as an example. And he goes on in verse 16, with regard to harlotry, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, and God is speaking in the book of Genesis about this, this is where Paul quotes, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So you have on the flesh side that connection with the world and the things of the world. You have on the spiritual side that connection of the Lord through his spirit. And that's the beauty of being a member of his body. We are joined to the Lord with him. So flee sexual immorality, he tells us in verse 18. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So there's a special difference with regard to the sexuality that he's talking about here. You commit a sexual sin 
with a harlot, with an adulteress, you are committing a sin that impacts your body. In verse, well, before I go on to verse 19, just a reminder, in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about those various kinds of sexual sins, homosexuality in particular. And he has mentioned homosexuality, effeminate uh, uh, relationships here as well. Paul and the Lord both have the same position with regard to homosexuality. It is a sin. It's not a sin that is any different than any other sin as far as God is concerned. All sins lead men away from God. Every sin that is unconfessed is judged by the Lord. Those who are outside the church will find that judgment to be final. And they will be judged on those sins. And Paul goes through again in Romans chapter 1. You can read that chapter. It's a very, very important chapter with regard to sexual sins. He talks about homosexuality there too. And he says that those who participate in those sins receive the penalty in their bodies that is just. And when I have read that over and over again, I remind myself of the various effects of those kinds of sins on the human body. And of course, you all are familiar with the diseases that are common among homosexuals. AIDS. And now the monkeypox. By the way, the monkeypox is a homosexual sin. It is being spread among the homosexual community. And yes, there are incidents where others who are not homosexual have been infected. But if you look closely at those reports, you will find that those individuals touched clothing or some other things that a homosexual who had participated and passed that monkey virus on through the clothing or through the article that they touched. It's not because heterosexuals can get this through heterosexual activity. Only homosexual activity, so far as we know, is the source of that. It certainly is not the case with AIDS. But a homosexual can pass it on to a woman who then can pass it on heterosexually to another man. Those are the truths of what is taking place in the world. Sin is sin. And God is judging those sins. And the body is the recipient of the judgment that is being meted out by the Lord in those sexual sin areas. It's still being done today. And it's obvious. But God loves still those who are involved in homosexual activity. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it's not God's will that any should perish, whether they're homosexuals or not. But he wants them to come out of that homosexual relationship. He wants them to uh, take a step in the right direction to free themselves from that sin. And so anyone who would say, God's an angry God who sends people to hell, they do not have a clue. God does not send anyone to hell. He's warning them that that's the direction they're going if they continue in the sins that they are committing, whether it's homosexuality or, or, or any other kinds of sin. Fornication, adultery, idolatry, thievery, murder, extortion, 
any of these various sins, if they're not repented of, will lead that individual into the ditch. Simple as that. But you and I, because we're born again, we have God's grace and mercy, and we plead His forgiveness, and He is willing to forgive, always, every time. Well, verse 18, again, flee sexual immortality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. It's a warning that we need to take heed of. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? Again in verse 15 he said, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And here in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are Christ's. You are a special person because you have the Holy Spirit in you. These are wonderful truths that we need not take for granted. And then in verse 20, lastly, he says, For you were bought with a price. Let us never forget that. He paid the price. He paid it all for you. When he said, It is finished on the cross, the price was indeed fully paid. He paid that price. Therefore, he finally says, Glorify God in your body. And in some translations, it is added, and in your spirit, which are God's. Not found in all the manuscripts, but I think it's fine to have it as part of what we've read today. Again, verse 20 says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Both body and spirit. We'll talk about the spirit and soul in another time, in the Word of God, there are places where the words spirit and soul seem to be interchangeable. In other places, they seem to be uniquely different. But Paul is using them, the word spirit here in a same way that he would use the word soul. Your soul is a living spirit. will always live. We will never die. But while we have this life, while we are in this body, let us be mindful of the things that Paul has expressed in this chapter and in chapter 5 with regard to the sins that the world commits and let that not be so among us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to avoid such things. The consequences of such sins are very great. But we have an advocate with the Father. And because of that advocate, we have a freedom that the world does not have. Blessed be the name of the Lord for giving us His grace and His mercy in these last days through His Spirit so that we 